0: And the base liquid that was being used was actually described as a dirty Algerian red wine.
1: Welcome to For You, the War is Over, a podcast on Second World War Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony.
0: Now, in this episode, we're looking at Sergeant Rene, Denis Rene, who was a flight engineer with 347 Squadron of 4 Group Bomber Command. So, a little bit, I think, on the Free French Forces so the free french forces were effectively combatants operating under the government in exile under de gaulle when he left france and come across london so in june 1940 de gaulle puts out this call to all french nationals french colonies all around the world to stand up to the nazi tyranny however looking at it quite a lot of those regions actually aligned themselves with the vichy government at the time and mostly those in africa which is why we see a large contingent of the free french travel to africa fight the germans in africa and the number of Free French forces actually increases during the course of the war up to about the point of D-Day when they were about half a million personnel. However, the Free French did actually serve in every major campaign all throughout World War II. They didn't specifically always have their own services, even though they operated within every service, but they would actually have a unit within a particular force. So for example there was a Royal Navy unit that had a Free French division. The Canadian Navy had a Free French division. Interestingly the Soviet Air Force also had a Free French division. Okay. I've never one. come across that. Before. Well, I, I mean, I'd seen it because there there have been airplanes flying around at air shows that are Russian-built airplanes with f- the Free French Cross of Lorraine mm-hmm. on it. I didn't appreciate so much that there was actually quite a big contingent okay. within the Soviet Air Force, and also the British SAS had a Free French contingent within it. We are specifically, however, looking at the Royal Air Force, and there were a number of free French squadrons within the Royal Air Force, and there were two particular ones within Bomber Command, which was 346 and 347 Squadron. Now, we are looking at 347 Squadron, which was Rene's unit. Now, this particular unit was a bomber squadron, flying Halifax 3s, and they were formed at RAF Elvington quite late in the war. We're looking 20th of June, 1944, so post D-Day. Okay. And it was made up from contingents of people who had previously been deployed in the Middle East. Now, we know that Rene was actually a recipient of the Croix de Guerre already by this time, because it's on his escape report. And he was a three-star Croix de Guerre at that. So the Croix de Guerre was given to individuals who distinguished themselves, by acts of heroism involving combat with enemy forces. Now, So it's a gallantry award. It's a gallantry award. Looking it up, there's lots of variations depending on what the medal is made from and how many stars or the colours of the ribbon. And it also changes. The Quadigo in World War II is different to the quadrigo from World War One. There's a civilian quadrigo as well. But effectively, all of these different levels of... Croix de Guerre are given depending on how your act of gallantry was noted. So was it noted in as we would have had it in dispatches, or was it noted at sort of HQ command level? But overall, whilst there are various different levels, they're roughly the equivalent of the US Bronze Star, or in UK terms, the Military Cross and Mid- Military Medal, okay. are all about the same as this particular award. So we don't sadly know what he got it for, but we know he was part of this squadron that set up at Elvington. There is an interesting fact that I did manage to find about RAF Elvington. I I know Elvington very roughly. There's a most wonderful air museum there. Most people will know it having seen it on programmes such as Top Gear as the airfield that they use for high speed testing because it's got a massively long runway. Okay. I believe off the top of my head, post-war it was a reserve landing area for the shuttle. If the shuttle came in and they miscalculated it, it needed to put it in Europe, the runway was long enough for it to put down there. So it's a massive base now.
1: Is that because it was a bomber base that it's got such a long...
0: I think post-war they extended it for the V-bombers okay. and nuclear deterrent and everything else it's now a a museum and mostly it's just used for car testing on the old runway so i know the place just outside york lovely museum well worth visiting but the interesting fact that came up about this is it was one of the few air bases that when the free french squadron came to it there were no women allowed on base now most raf bases obviously had a WAF contingent but it was strictly no women only on raf elvington so there were no females on base not in the catering not in planning it was a male only base the other interesting fact that makes it very different from all of the other RAF bases is that the Free French had started a tradition down in Africa that Every meal, and I outline every meal of the day, is accompanied by wine. And the base liquid that was being used was actually described as a dirty Algerian red wine that would be served breakfast, lunch, and dinner as standard on the base. Very different. It does sound (laughs) awful, but it is a very different operating system to every other REF command, shall we say? But that's about all that I managed to get on Rene up until the point of his flight on this day. And we're actually looking at quite late. We're looking. 16th of January 1945 there was obviously still a big bombing campaign. Obviously at that point we're advancing through Europe quite fast and getting into Germany but there was a requirement on the night of the 16th of January for the bombing of Magdeburg which is the mission that Rene was on 347 Squadron actually lost two aircraft that night including Rene's obviously and what I had found on a little French website is they actually hadn't managed to fly their previous three missions even though they had taken off I found a bit of research that somebody had been doing who I think had found the crash site later on to say that the three previous missions to one they were lost on the crew actually took off but returned to base with serious mechanical issues on each one and that on the night that they were shot down they had actually had a fire in number one engine on the left wing because that in fact is a big four engine bomber okay left to right if you're looking forward one two and then on the other side three and four they'd actually had an engine fire in number one on start they'd had to stop have the ground crews extinguish it inspect it start again they then had a magnet Magneto drop on another engine, which they couldn't clear. They had an engine running. There's normally two magnetos on an engine, provides the spark for the spark plugs. One packs up or it's failing. It gives you lower RPM because the sparking not sparking as well as it should. Mm. And it's going to give you less power. But they elected, because they had spent the last three missions returning to base that they actually wanted to go. So they left having had an engine fire on the ground and then one engine not performing as well as it should to go and bomb Magneburg from Elvington in Yorkshire.
1: I mean, not that I'm one to criticise the mechanics, but you think they would have got the hint that there was an issue with this plane?
0: There was a big problem throughout the war with a lot of technical reliability. You've obviously looking at massive technological demand as opposing sides develop better and better equipment. But equally, how much work and effort do you put into something that potentially is only going to have a few short hours mm. of operation? A bomber is probably slightly longer, but if you think an average trip is, say, seven hours, and you might get ten trips out of a bomber, it's going to last 70 hours. Modern aeroplanes now, we service every 50 hours. Mm -hmm. Particularly earlier in the war, a lot of the fighters weren't getting anything near that. Mm -hmm. So there was no real service schedule or or, or servicing programme because they never lasted long enough to be serviced. I'm not sure how many missions this bomber had made, because it Mm -hmm. may well have served with another unit before joining the French unit, but assuming it had come on, on strength at the same time, it must have been at least six or seven months old and it's quite possible that there are issues but obviously issues come about the more you use it it becomes obvious they may well have fixed all these things but maybe it was going to get tired so that brings us forward to that night the 16th of january when they're setting off so they've had some problems and they're now electing to go now there's a crew of seven on this bomber and Rene is the flight engineer so he would be flying up the front in the cockpit with the Pilot. They leave at around about seven o'clock, and he just says, We took off from Elvington in Halifax at seven o'clock on the 16th of January to bomb Magdeburg. 25 minutes after we had left the target on the return journey. The aircraft was attacked by a German fighter and the aircraft burst into flames. The pilot gave the order to bail out at an altitude of about 15,000 feet. Now, it's unlikely they were bombing from 15,000 feet. They were probably much higher. So they've evidently tried to fight this on the way down and the pilots decided that they're not going to go anywhere. He gives in his report that a number of the crew, he was fate unknown at that time. We obviously have the benefit of time now to look at records of those seven crew obviously René was survived two of the crew the pilot and the mid upper gunner were both killed in the either attack or the resulting crash all of the others did actually parachute out and become prisoners of war. So whilst he didn't know this at the time of giving his report two had been killed, five had survived. He says, I bailed out and I landed about one kilometre west of Deerholzen at about half past ten at
1: night. So what I find really interesting about this report and not many of the reports actually mention this is the way his training kicked in instantly because he says I sprinkled pepper over my parachute harness and may West and hid them in a the bush. Now that is kind of classic escape and evasion training. It's brilliant isn't it? Yeah, exactly. As much as these are all escape reports you don't actually see that all that often yeah in the report themselves so it's interesting to actually see that coming out and the training has kicked in with them yeah but,
0: <laughs> we, we hear typically of people saying i buried my parachute i removed my badges and threw them away i chucked everything in a stream i chucked something under a bridge they try and hide the fact that this is the area they've come down but
1: sprinkling pepper i think is good super, touch yeah good touch yeah interesting they had pepper on them to do it with as well yeah however usually uh, the training states that they should try and exit the immediate vicinity as quickly as possible having buried their kit well he doesn't hang around right next to the harness and the may west and his parachute etc he does say that he remained hidden in the area until the following evening so the evening of the 17th of january during which time on different occasions i heard search parties who were looking for me so a he must have been well hidden but b he didn't rush to get out of the immediate vicinity which is quite interesting not the usual practice so on the one hand we've seen training kick in instantly but on the other hand he's hung around in the area which is not how the training usually goes but to be fair he doesn't go into any detail but it's not impossible there is a reason for this it's perfectly possible that the Germans were on the scene almost instantly and he just had to hide himself up as quickly as possible rather than try to exit the area in the report he doesn't go into too much detail as to why But as he landed in Germany, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that there were German civilians or soldiers or other troops on the scene quite quickly and he just had to find somewhere to hide himself up in rather than trying to exit vicinity immediately. The opportunity may not have just presented itself by virtue of the fact that he landed in Germany, whereas quite often we see them land in Netherlands, Belgium, France, etc. Yeah, completely. This is a slightly different twist on that, so that may explain why he hasn't left the area. Nonetheless, he has been able to hide himself well enough to survive until the following in the evening so he survived an entire day at about 5.30 in the evening on the 17th of January, I started walking west. At that time, I wore the dark blue uniform of the Free French Air Force but I'd removed all my badges. So there's the badge removal. Yeah, and that's very common. Now, there's an interesting detail in his report where he says, on my way, I met many German civilians from whom I asked directions. I told them that I was a French worker. I spoke with them in German, which I'd learned in school in Switzerland and whilst living in Alsace-Lorraine. Now, he doesn't explicitly state that he speaks fluent German, but it's pretty clear by virtue of the fact that he's able to asked for directions converse with germans in germany has lived in uh, switzerland and lived in alsace-lorraine so alsace-lorraine at this time and for several decades previously was a highly contested area between france and germany had initially been part of france had been claimed by germany following the 1870 war and the unification of germany yes france then took it back as part of the post first world war treaty But it had been part of Germany for a good 50 years at that point. And of course, it's right on the border with Germany. So the intermingling of languages would have been quite high at that point. So the fact that it's kind of switched nations, for want of a better description, post-various wars, and it's right on the border meant that the degree at which the locals would have spoken both French and German would have been quite high. So it's not unusual that he speaks fluent German having come from Alsace-Lorraine, factoring the fact that he's also been educated in Switzerland and his fluent German would be quite common and is extremely useful throughout all of this escape. Yes,
0: yes. In escaping, speaking all of the major languages of the area is going to help.
1: Yes, but as I said earlier, most we tend to see coming down in Belgium, Netherlands, France, which are not German-speaking countries. So the fact that he's actually come down in Germany and is able to speak fluent German isn't as common as you might think think actually yeah good point so he's been traveling at night following the main highway towards hamlin and he arrives there at about 11 30 in the morning on the 18th of january and made his way directly to the railway station a quick side point this is the hamlin of pi piper fame oh yeah that's yeah which is an early medieval tale for those who don't know it's supposed to be from about the 1100s Right Whereby Around the time of the plague Infested with rats Piper magically Takes all the rats out He hasn't paid So you steals all the children so having reached the railway station at Hamlin, he tried to buy a ticket but was unable to do so because he only had Dutch money on him. Now this goes back to what I said. If they were shot down he tended to land in the low countries. Yeah. And so as part of the escape kits that they were provided with they tended to be given money either of Dutch or Belgian or French origin yes. in order to assist in their escape. So he only has Dutch money on him. Now he figured it's worth a try, but having only Dutch money on him that wasn't accepted and therefore he had to try again. So having been rejected in buying a ticket, he then inquired about the whereabouts of other French workers in the area and was taken to a German woman in a canteen where he met several French workers there from there he was introduced to the man of confidence in the local french working camp now we have touched upon the man of confidence before we have quick recap the man of confidence was the point of contact between the holding power and the prisoners it was a role typically performed by the sbo in an officer's camp but it was essentially the the person who was trusted by the prisoners to go and represent their interest to the holding powers the germans clearly this is true in a working camp as it was in a prisoner war camp yeah often on points of welfare health new Nutrition, guards brutality, perhaps. And so the man of confidence was a very senior person. He was not necessarily a senior rank. He was just a senior person that was well-respected and they were voted upon. So it was a democratic appointment. I get you, yeah. So René has been introduced to this man of confidence in the local French working camp. This man of confidence then took his escape kit and his Air Force identity card from him and hid them for him. So helping him out here because if you're caught with an RAF ID card, good chance you'd be...
0: Well, at that point in the war, maybe even shot.
1: Yes, terra fliege. So having his ID card hidden for him was actually an act of generosity rather than a hindrance. Although he did have the ID card returned to him when he left Hamlin a couple of days later and he stitched it into his coat. So this French man of confidence took him into the barracks of the working camp and supplied him with civilian clothes. In this camp he says there were about 100 workers there including 7 Frenchmen, Poles, Czechs, Russians and Dutchmen which is a positive from his perspective because it meant he could assimilate into the camp wouldn't mm. necessarily be particularly noticed an extra body there just another yeah. Frenchman, French worker doesn't really matter interesting though and this is particularly useful when you're trying to escape all of them worked in the railway <laughs> and we know how good rail links are to get as far escaping, away as possible yep. yeah so he remained at the camp for about four days staying there until the 22nd of january now he'd injured his foot presumably upon landing okay and actually had to spend most of the time in bed recuperating and he actually says several times police made inspections but his identity was never discovered one night he had to sleep in a straw pile as the information was received that members of the Gestapo would be making a search so he's clearly had to be hidden in camp Mm. because of course he's not registered in the camp at this stage when there's an inspection, clearly the police are suspicious if they manage to do several searches in the space of three, four days. Yeah. Nonetheless, while he was in Hamelin, he was able to exchange his Dutch money for German marks with the help of the other French workers. So that's extremely useful if he's looking to escape and travel on the rail. So he's already got contacts on the railway, and now he's got German money, yeah. which, regardless of where he is in occupied Europe, is going to be more useful than having Dutch or French or Belgian or Luxembourg money. It'd be far more useful to just have German marks. So to aid him in his journey, he'd been given... Food tickets by the workmen at Hamlin, which he was able to exchange for meal at workmen's canteens along the way. At nine o'clock in the morning on the 22nd of January, he boarded the workmen's train and was making his way to Ham. Mm-hmm. Now, on the way there, he went through a place called Hereford, which is roughly 175 kilometers away from Hamlin. Okay. And while there, an alert was sounded. An, an air raid. An air raid was sounded. I okay. get And all passengers had to leave the train for underground shelters in the station. While in this underground shelter, police officials were making an identity check. Now, he only had his RAF ID card on him, which he'd stitched into his coat. Oh. And so, because of that, he tried to dodge the identity check, but was caught.
0: Yeah, it's not like you can be seen to be leaving an air raid shelter in the middle raid, of an air raid yeah. without attracting suspicion
1: exactly and so he was taken to the local police station in hereford and interrogated there as to a squadron because they'd find his id card during the search oh in his jacket in his jacket yeah so that he was interrogated there as to a squadron which he refused to tell them now because of his refusal to tell them the police sergeant actually started hitting them and threatening them they'd be taken to a place where they would make him talk ominous Ominous and not an empty threat in Nazi Germany. Hmm. And so the police officer there made a short report, and Rene was then sent with the corporal and two other guards towards the railway station, intending to take him to another town. Now, while walking through Hereford to the station, the RAF started strafing the town. Right, okay. And so the corporal told the two guards to take Rene and go and find shelter. So they took him to an alleyway between two houses. He states in his report some of the strafing was very close, and the corporal thought threw himself on the ground. Because of that I thought it was an ideal opportunity for me to make my getaway. So presumably Rene has not thrown himself to the ground and he's, he's stood up to take this. And uh, Exactly. And in effect he has been rescued by strafing. Allied strafing. Ballsy. Yeah, exactly. So in reality he has only actually been captured for a couple of hours here. Yeah. He doesn't state specifically how long but he is only in German hands for a couple of hours. Well, if that even actually. Because
0: if he was on the train and they got the airway warning that there were allies approaching And then he goes into the shelter.
1: And the Allies are then there. And then
0: the Allies are then there as he's being taken somewhere else. It could even be as little as an hour.
1: Yeah, I mean, he doesn't state how long he's in the police station for, but he's not in custody for long. Nonetheless, he was held. Right. Which is why this is technically an escape. I get you. So having almost immediately regained his freedom, he left Hereford immediately and walked cross-country to Bielfeld, arriving after dark. So he's clearly walked the 15 kilometres through the day into the following night. And again, while there, there was another alert while he was in the station there. I know we've said it's January 1945, but clearly... Allied
0: activity is quite high. Exactly.
1: And so he took another workman's train and actually made it to Ham, arriving there around about midnight. There he changed trains and went to Dortmund, arriving around about one in the morning on the 23rd of January. And after waiting an hour and a half at the station, he took another train to Mulheim am Rhein. So he's now reached the River Rhine. Now, as we said earlier, the Allies haven't crossed the Rhine yet. So he's still in German-held territory, but he's certainly heading towards the Allied lines. Yeah, it'd be be another couple of
0: months, March, wasn't it? Yeah, but equally they
1: weren't that far away either because the fighting on the Rhine took... A long time. Yeah. It was a very difficult river to cross so the Allied lines weren't too far on the other side. His intention there was to walk across the Hohenzollern bridge with the intent of crossing the Rhine to Cologne. However when he reached the bridge he states, I noticed that all civilians had to show identity documents before crossing the bridge while soldiers could pass unmolested. I therefore returned to the time where I approached a truck with Belgian soldiers in German uniform belonging to an SS division. I told them in French that I was a French workman who had lost his papers and wanted to go to Cologne. They put me in the truck and without any difficulty I got across the bridge.
0: I mean, that in itself is quite interesting because if you see people, unless you can hear what they're saying seeing people in German uniform wouldn't necessarily attract the desire to go and talk to them. Mm -hmm. So he must have maybe followed these people for a while. And I mean, to me, if I was in that position, understanding why there were Belgians in German uniform in the first instance would be quite something. But the fact that he deemed them to be friendly and he could open up in that situation is again quite ballsy
1: i'm not sure if he necessarily deemed them to be friendly as such it's more he had the confidence in his ability to communicate with them whether in french or german he was in civilian clothing by this point Mm. he had been in a workman's camp so he would have been dressed like a workman therefore being able to communicate them and looking like those around him it wasn't actually a particularly tall tale for him to tell uh, good point and therefore he was able to convince them to give him the lift that he needed across the river without having to show any ID hmm So he clearly has a lot of confidence in his ability to speak the language, and if you're that fluent, you would be. Yeah. But it's also a degree of confidence in his escapability, if you like. Mm. So having made it to Cologne, he made his way to the railway station, but found it deserted and that no trains were leaving it, which does suggest some bombing activity. So, in the absence of trains to travel on, he walked along the Aachen Highway towards Horum, and there he met several Polish workers who, of course, were able to help him much more amenable to help him as well i can't imagine the poles were particularly loyal to the germans by 1945 no no, not at all i asked them in german if there were any frenchmen around and i was taken to the french man of confidence to whom i explained my identity so again he's going straight to the reliable point of contact within any grouping And this man of confidence took him to the sleeping quarters after taking away his Air Air Force identity card and hiding it on his person. So this man of confidence is actually taking a big risk himself by having this ID card on him. He remained in these barracks for three days until the 26th of January when he was given a bicycle. Oh, good old bicycle. Uh, At least he
0: was given it rather than stealing it. Exactly. We Um, saw a lot in series three of bicycle theft. mm -hmm.
1: Nice change to actually being gifted one. It was his intention to make his way towards the Allied lines on this bike. However, he only got as far as Steinstrasse, uh, where he was stopped by German soldiers. And not having any idea on him, he was not permitted to go any further as the locality was already under Allied fire. So we now know that he's basically right at the front lines. He is, yeah. He therefore returned to the French working camp at Horem. So, having returned to Horem, on the same afternoon, he was taken by the French Man of Confidence to the Arbeitsamt, which is basically like a German job centre or labour exchange, if you like. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that would make sense. And there he told them that he'd been ev- evacuated by a German SS troops from Belgium to Germany and that he wanted to work. So, having registered as a foreign worker at this Arbeitsamt or labour exchange... He was given the certificate to go to Ellsdorf to find employment at a grocery store, retail and wholesale as a driver. Okay. So he's effectively been given this certificate that registers him as a foreign worker to do any driving, which becomes quite convenient, actually. Very
0: convenient. A vehicle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So later that day, he went to the address that was given to him, but he was told that there was no work for him. He was then sent to the General Transport Office at Bergheim, where they phoned a Dr. Andre, chief of the Arbeitsamt in the Cologne district, whose offices were at Horem, to find out if a driver was needed. He was therefore told to report to this Dr. Andre on the 1st of February, and in the meantime, he just remained at the workmen's barracks at Horham. Now, th- this is actually quite fortuitous because on the 8th of February, so a week after this introduction was made, he was given a truck, the engine of which had broken down, and so he was actually out of work. Right. So, as a result of that, he ended up being employed as the personal driver to this Dr. André. Mm-hmm. So, essentially, quite a senior local German official. Yeah. He is now the chauffeur.
0: That's good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great cover, but also quite a... There's a wonderful irony to an escaped prisoner of war yes. ending up as a personal chauffeur to a local German official yes. as his cover while he waits for the Allied lines to advance. Yes, you I have like to it. hand it to him; he's really pulled it out the bag here. He, this is good. And so, as a result of this, he ends up with an arbeitsbuch for Auslander, which is basically foreign workers' ID, and remained with this Doctor Andre until the 26th of February, and basically was just traveling around the district the entire time. On the 26th of February, the Allied forces were now only about 15 kilometres away, so he went into hiding with the other French workers and the German families somewhere between Horum and Ichendorf, remaining there until the 1st of March. And at 6.30 in the morning on the 1st of March, he crossed the Allied lines with the French Man of Confidence. Now, I actually looked this up to see where the Allies had reached on the 1st of March. Okay. And they'd got as far as Gladbach, which is about 40 kilometres north of Horum so a relatively easy jaunt up to the front line from where he was hiding out yeah and would fit within the locality of where they'd reached so they took over Munk and gladbach that day and so he's gone up to that locality and crossed the allied lines there he was interrogated by the americans and then sent immediately to paris And from there, he was sent by air to the UK on the 10th of March, returning to the UK about six weeks after being shot down and captured.
0: Wow. So sadly, René falls into the category of we don't have any post-war history for him, as we do with quite a number of these uh, individuals. Particularly (laughs) at this rank. Particularly at this rank. And actually, even in the whole research for this, there was actually very little that came up about him altogether where i did manage to find quite a, a amount of information is in relation to the navigator okay. on his bomber so you said earlier that five survived five survived so the pilot was killed and the mid-upper gunner was killed and we know renee was the flight engineer but the navigator bomber wireless operator and rear gunner all survived and parachuted to safety the navigator and forgive all French listeners for my pronunciation of this, but he was Captain Geoffrey de Sauvebuff. Okay. And he actually only passed away in 2016. Okay. And he seems to be relatively well-known within France. He died at the age of 103, having actually spent the vast majority of his working life in the French military forces. Okay. So he was well-known, but he had also been taken a prison of war and had also managed to escape. Okay. Now... There's not an awful lot of widely available reports on French escapes and things like that, or indeed uh, research that is easily translatable uh, that we can call upon to any great degree of uh, of accuracy as far as translating programmes go for this. But yeah, he appears to be fairly well-known, and people who have researched Geoffrey have pieced together all the rest of the information around the mission and everything else, but René is mentioned only as a, another crew member, mm-hmm. and yet... You've managed to find his his actual escape report. Mm -hmm. And we've managed to piece together his part of the story from that. But no, sadly, unless anybody has some information on René and what happened to him eventually, I, I think we can well presume with getting back to the UK in March 1945, he was unlikely to have gone on and done much further service. So almost certainly, hopefully survived the rest of the war, but unfortunately
1: that's where Yeah the research ends. It seems a reasonable assumption that he took part in no further fighting. What I find interesting about this particular escape is he was only held for a couple of hours at most. And yet that innate desire to escape was still there. Mm. Now, it's not in everyone, as, as we know. It's actually a relatively small percentage of people who were captured actually wanted to escape and took part in the escape, yet with him, within hours, he was pushing to escape. And it's, I just find it interesting that it, it doesn't take months and years of captivity to develop that desire. It can be there from the second you're captured. And that's certainly evident with him Absolutely. in this escape.
0: Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms.
1: Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O.
0: Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.